Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at Reconditioning HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Darren Burgess. Darren is currently the High Performance Manager at the Melbourne Football Club. Prior to his current role, he served as the Director of High Performance at Arsenal Football Club between 2017 and 2019. He was also previously the High Performance Manager at Port Adelaide Football Club and Head of Fitness and Conditioning at Liverpool Football Club. Between 08 and 10, Darren served as the Head of Sports Science for Football Federation Australia, as well as acting as the Australian soccer team's fitness coach, which included an appearance at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. Prior to 2010, he worked in a number of performance roles with several football, professional soccer and football organizations, as well as being a lecturer in exercise science at the Australian Catholic University in Sydney. He completed his PhD in movement analysis in 2012. Darren has had multiple papers published in peer-reviewed journals and has spoken at many international conferences. Above all, his accomplishments in human performance, he's also a father of two kids happy father's day darren or belated father's day and welcome thanks scott i appreciate it it's a it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast i'm I'm a huge fan and look forward to having the chat yeah well tell me where did you where did you actually grow up because you you've kind of (laughs) you keep flying from australia to the uk and back uh yeah yeah look up i'm a sydney boy uh i spent the first uh pretty much 30 years of my life living in sydney and and love it. That's that's uh, my hometown, and uh, unfortunately, in our job, as 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 you know, that can sort of take you around a few different places, and so you mm-hmm. have to be a little bit flexible. And and that's that's kind of what I've done, I guess. So, growing up in Sydney, were what were your big influences from a sport perspective? Did you play a lot of sports? Obviously, mo- most likely you did, but I'm just curious what, yeah. what you're into. No, I played played a lot of cricket, which I may need to explain to you, Scott, what, what, what cricket is. Uh, I know it's what it like is. A, yeah. long, a long version of baseball. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we uh, that that was my sport growing up, and and I played at an okay level uh, up to about 17, 18. and then um, yeah, I, I sort of got tired of it, I guess, and and I always wanted to to play for Australia and and do all the things that that every Australian kid wants to do and and I hear a lot of podcasts I've mentioned this once or twice before where people say you know I was an athlete but then I got injured and uh, got into strength and conditioning I I was just never good enough Scott Um, I'd like to say that I was but I was just never good enough and so I thought how can I be involved in sport and turn it into a career and so I studied uh, sports science. There weren't too many courses around in in uh, 1992, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, there was a, a really uh, 
fresh new course at University of New South Wales, which wasn't too far from where I grew up. And um, so that's where I went and uh, studied it Then didn't get a job for probably the uh, full-time job for probably the first six or seven years after graduating, much to the frustration of my uh, mum and dad. And, you know, I was living as a Pizza Hut delivery driver and working in a gym and uh, all those sorts of things, uh, working part-time, volunteering for different clubs and, and teams just to get some some coaching experience um, until I, I happened to land a full-time job at about age 30, I think it was. So, oh, wow. uh yeah, it was it was a while. What did what did your uh, dad and mum do, or, and and what was how was their influence in your call it academic life, so to speak? Yeah, they were they were huge influences, Scott. Um, my mum uh, was a teacher, um, and uh, so she was really uh, big on the academia. And I'd have to say, um, one of the the best moments, uh, as nice as it's been to work with different teams, uh, completing my PhD, which didn't happen until sort of four or five years after mum passed away um, with with a long battle with cancer that was uh, I, I pretty much battled through that PhD just just for her really um, so mm-hmm. finishing that was probably the career highlight uh, regardless of anything else that's happened uh, and my dad played uh, was a, was a really talented tennis uh, tennis player and mm-hmm. and, and um, he played cricket uh, as well up until you know, he was 50, so I used to love going down and watching him play. Mm. Um, I didn't know that it was a really crappy level and he was just playing with his mates to have a few beers and things like that. But uh, <laughs> I used to uh, I used to just love going down there. And he, he taught me he ran his own business, so uh, he, he definitely taught me work ethic um, and uh, and what it means to, to really uh, give up a lot in order to provide for your family. Mm. You know, I, I don't usually get too deep too quickly, but, you know, you mentioned in your thing to me about having lost a mentor to cancer and now your mom you described. What, how has that shaped you, like having lost two people who were highly influential in, you, to, in your life to that disease? Has it left a mark on you in some way or shaped you in some way when you look at life now? Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is going virtual. The Reconditioning Level 1 has been turned into a complete online experience, and all the time-tested systems and processes are now available to you in 20 hours of online video modules and two virtual Zoom sessions. Reconditioning is a very powerful language and system of practice that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one complete package and helps you deliver the most powerful injury and performance solutions to your clients. Check them out at reconditioninghq.com today and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Yeah, it really has, Scott. I, I can't tell you how um, how much I, I feel like I changed uh, after mum passed away. Uh, she battled it for 13 years, um, you know, in a time when there wasn't much knowledge around um, how to treat cancer. So she would there was no real internet until later on in the piece. And um, so she would research different alternative methods the best way she could. And I would help her along with that because I had uh, been at university, had access to a lot more information than, than perhaps she did. Um, but how it and, and I lost a really uh, a close friend and mentor of mine called Dean Bailey um, uh, several years later uh, and not too long ago. And, um, he was diagnosed in October and passed away the following February. So mm. um, it, it was a pretty, a pretty quick turnaround and pretty dramatic. And um, it, it really did uh, highlight to me what's important 
Mm. And um, prior to that, I probably thought if I lost a player to a, well, I definitely thought not probably, if I lost a player to a hamstring injury, that was the most important thing in my world and I would Mm. delve into the data and the heart rates and the limited GPS and (laughs) training RPEs and blood work and everything and say, where did I get it wrong? And I'd be a horrendous to hang around um you know because I'd, I'd take it personally if we lost a game I'd take it personally and um but but after losing mum uh who, who was the very definition of courage uh and then Bales later on it, it, it really did hit home what's what's important and to look at the bigger picture and mm. um and also uh, you know from a performance point of view looking at what um globally how it can influence um everything uh, you know, because I, I did see mum's condition uh, increase and decrease um, uh, with stress and, and with things like that. So, um, yeah, it, it did, did hit home that aspect of it as well. Wow. Did, like, were you, you know, to, to be as successful as you've been and to, and to work at the highest levels of sport like you have and, and you know, I've, I've lived in the same the world, so to speak. I mean, you, you gotta, you got to be a bit of a workaholic to a degree. And I think that there's, there's this we're all sort of managing as we go along in our careers this, this fine line between how, how hard or how deeply we dive into our work and how well we manage family and other things like that is how has that changed for you over time based on those losses and also, you know, uh, relationship changes and, and having kids and things like that. Have you sort of call it tempered your, 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 the way you go about your work or changed it a little bit? Yeah, it's a great question, and and there is certainly a lot of um, discussion now um, online on podcasts on just in general about um, about staff well-being in the high-performance world and how we can best manage it. Uh, there is a reality though to it, Scott, and that is that if you want to work in this environment, um, you you have to give up weekends. Um, you you know you have to give up your Friday and Saturday night because um, you might be playing games, you might be travelling. That's the reality. And uh, if if people who are listening or are thinking about getting into the industry and they think it's quite um, you know attractive and sexy and get to work in I don't know, the NFL, NBA, and um, you speak to anybody who's been living it for a while and it's anything but that. Um, the relationships with those athletes are very much transient. Um, the The thrill of game day is there. There's no doubt about that. But uh, as soon as game day finishes, you 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 know your mind's on the next game, and you're trying to coerce players into recovery, trying to calm coaches down. You you know, there's a whole range of things that you have to do. So, mm-hmm. so uh, in a roundabout way, um, there is that balance. How is it? Um, I, I was absolutely a workaholic in my early days um, and my early years, and I think that's stood me in good stead now. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I can step back a little bit and get the balance right, and I, I think I've done that particularly the last sort of three or four years. I've really got the balance right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I chose different different vocations, you know, uh, different jobs in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's provided an unbelievable experience for, for my kids. Mm. Um, they've got to see parts of the world that they never, ever would. Um, 
uh, otherwise. You know, Australia's a long way away from everybody, uh, as evidenced mm-hmm. by the time zone difference that you and I have got going on at the moment, <laughs> Scott. But uh, so my kids have seen parts of Europe and Asia and the Middle East that they just never would. So I think that'll stand in stand them in really good stead. Mm-hmm. I think now that they're nine and and eight, uh, after after I finished with Arsenal, I had some tremendous opportunities. Uh, further abroad that were financially and, and status-wise, um, you know, a, a significant improvement on on the role at Arsenal and, and Liverpool and, and the role that I'm on at the moment. But I think there comes a time when you, you might have to take a bit of a backseat mm-hmm. and just say, right, what's what's best for, for the, the kids? And that's some stability, um, which is which is what, what I'm trying to give them now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you you mentioned earlier that it took a while for you to sort of find um, a position. So you 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 finish school and you come out of school and you you know are you, do you get a, a sense of you know this was this was a mistake or um, you know I, I did this wrong or what what kept you roll, going to, and believing that you were going to get where you wanted to get to. I'm, I'm just loving this line of questioning, Scott, because you don't often get that. It's more um, how do you fix a hamstring or <laughs> things like that, which I think is um, <clears throat> what's the you know when do you take caffeine before a game? So um, I, I really like this this line. I heard your your, your uh, podcast recently with Brett Bartholomew, and it went along a similar pathway. And, um, so I really do like it. One of, one of the frustrations that me and probably some of the other elder statesmen within the industry have is that, um, you know, people come out of university with a sports science degree and they might get an internship at a, at a club and organisation and and um, they just sort of flow through that way and their expectations are a lot higher. Um, I, I wanted to give up that many times. Um, I could tell you stories about how I went to withdraw money and the, to, to buy friends Bucks, Bucks party presents and costumes and things like that. And there's just nothing there. All my mates were out working, mm. you know, being an accountant or a teacher or a policeman or something like that. And because of our industry, you don't open the paper and see a job for a fitness coach or a sports scientist. We certainly didn't back then. <laughs> so I got refused probably four or five jobs, mm. um, some of which would have been humiliating to do, but I just needed some full-time work somewhere near the industry. Mm. Um, what kept me going is um, I, I had that firm belief, and mum was pretty sick at the time off and on, but, and I had that firm belief that um, it, you want to do things that you love. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it does feel like work. I didn't want to work in an office. I wanted to work outside. And, and so that, that's why I, I kept sort of pushing and pushing and, and, and sticking with it. I, I think had I not... Um, Got, got the job when I did, I probably would have gone into something like teaching, which would have been fine and I would have enjoyed it, but it's mm. not what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, but just through sheer necessity, I would have had to change career paths, I think. Right. What What did you fall in love with? Like, uh, you know, what what is your love affair with what you do? Um, it, 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 it started off, if I'm completely honest, uh, it started off with just a fascination with how the body works and how the body reacts to stress and um, just how far I could, um, I could push, I guess. Um, and and the, the, I just had a fascination with human physiology, uh, mm. in particular the sort of oxygen transport system and, and, and what made endurance uh, 
runners, uh, cyclists, uh, what made them so successful from a physiological point of view, nothing to do with their mental resilience or anything like that, mm. just how they, how efficient they were getting oxygen from the air to their muscles. Mm. Uh, and then as I went further on, it was more how can I um, – how can I get the best out of these players? How can um, I help young people, of which I was one of them at that, that point, but how can I help them um, achieve what, what they want to do? Mm. Um, and then probably the third part would be the competitive, I'm a pretty competitive guy, as uh, most, most of my friends and people who I play uh, soccer or football against would tell you um, mm. uh, the mind um, is far more uh, far more uh, capable than what the body is these days. But um, uh, yeah, the, the, the competitive part of it also is a is a reason why I sort of stay in this field. Mm. Um, so there's probably a few things, um, and it's probably transitioned from one to the other over over a period of time. Matrix Fitness is one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Their equipment and programs are used by athletes and coaches at all levels globally. COVID-19 has changed and will change so many things. During these uncertain times, Matrix's team of engineers have quickly put together its free home workout app and youth at home workout programs. With its launch just a couple of weeks ago, they now have first responders, pro athletes, and average folks using the guide to help them with their daily movement. This is a great example of how Matrix strives to be the best fitness company in the world to serve people and communities is their goal. You can download their free app and see additional resources at matrixtotalsolutionssupport.com. That is HTTPS www.matrixfitnesssolutionssupport.com. I'm interested how you've... Um sort of negotiate in the roles that you have as a high performance director or, or managing sort of the performance team and that interrelationship with the coach. Um, I'm kind of curious because it's, it's an area that really fascinates me is, you know, coaches long ago before we all came along kind of took care of the fitness side of things and the technical tactical. And then when sports science came along, we sort of took that, that baton away from them and, and, and they sort of accepted that, that change. But what I've always noticed in, in the, the difference between the two spectrum of professionals is that, you know, we take our science really seriously and our, you know, how we recover and recuperate and load and unload and all this kind of stuff. And the coach sure. coach manages that as well, but they, there's a, there's an emotional context to what coaches do in soccer, football, whatever the sports are, where they, they want to test the mettle of the athlete. And so there's the physiological, I want to get my athletes fit, but there's also this, I want to see what I can put them through to make sure they're ready for when they have to go through it, you know? And, I, sure. and I'm curious how you've negotiated that over time where you've had to have your hat on as the the guy who sort of protects the athletes from, you know, <laughs> what could go wrong and also recognizing that the coach needs to challenge that in their athletes sometimes. Um, how yeah, it's been managed. a transition, Scott, for sure. It's been a transition. And, and uh, I think in many ways the, uh, the influx of academic articles and research in our area has has set us back as much as it has progressed as as an industry, mm. because we're now 
uh, a little bit less willing to push players because uh, let's say that I happen to push uh, my players uh, here at here at Melbourne because um, the coach wants to see what they're capable of and wants to see who who gives up, which mm-hmm. is a completely legitimate reason to push players. And I sustain five or six soft tissue injuries. The club might well be within their rights to bring in an external consultant to have a look at what we did, and, and they would say, "Well, listen, you've just ignored all the peer-reviewed papers, which say that if you, you know, push, push the players over this limit, then they're going to get calf injuries or something like that." So this is mm-hmm. poor practice. Well, in actual fact, um, I think it's good practice. Uh, in many ways. So how have I navigated it is there's as much art as there is science. I did my PhD using GPS technology, so um, uh, you'd like to think that I'd rely on it a lot, but to be honest, um, I rely on my eye, the coach's eye, I think as as an industry, particularly sports science, not so much strength and conditioning, if I can separate those for a moment, Mm. tends to disregard the coach a lot mm. and we just know that coaches know good coaches know so um i have uh, probably learned over time when i could push and what and when i can't push and which athletes you can and can't push and i think that's just as important as knowing that you might be 20 percent over um what this athlete has done before um and so you are in a, at risk but you're prepared to take that risk because the benefits um, just far outweigh the risks of maybe losing one or two players. Mm. Um, so I hope that's answered your question, yeah, Scott. Yeah. I think it's a it's a combination of art and science, and um, uh, I think only experience lets you um, navigate between the two and and learn which one to lean on. Mm. You you've had a few roles similar in, with a few different clubs. Now, what what has changed in your what have been some golden nugget changes in your philosophy from the first time you had that iteration of performance director to the one you, you carry now? Has there been anything that's you've kind of, you kind of did the first time and then recognized that's not the best way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I um, ignored the athletes the first time I did it and just went with, (laughs) went with uh, the objective information. Mm. Um, and I think that gets you so far. I really do. I think a really good periodization plan and and a model. Um, and I was lucky enough to come after um, some pretty good people at the organisations that I've worked with early on. Um, and uh, particularly with, say, the Socceroos, um, uh, the Australian soccer team leading into the World Cup, you know, I'd had uh, a couple of years' experience with them at that point and I could, I could in my opinion, design a pretty good periodization plan um, but uh, when the players are telling you one thing, and this didn't happen necessarily at the Socceroos, but when the players are stressed, they're negotiating contracts. We, um, you know, during that World Cup period, we had all kinds of different stresses coming in from different angles amongst the players, and it wasn't until about that period that I realised, because we did some pretty good monitoring of the of the team, just how much. Uh, a player going through a contract negotiation prior to a World Cup, um, a player worried about being selected, um, constant media attention saying, will he or won't he get picked? Will he or mm. won't he come up for the first game? 
um, we monitored the players with some some pretty pretty neat sort of heart rate software that could detect the heart rate variability, and it just hit home how much that affects players. Um, uh, physical capabilities and how, how much it increases their injury risk. So it was probably about then that I realised how important that was, whereas, you know, the six or seven years that I was in this type of role before that, it was about – and we had some success, you know, at Port Adelaide we made a grand final um, or, a, or a championship playoff, I guess you guys would call it, uh, with, a, with, with not a particularly strong team. So we had some success. Um, but – uh, I think we might have had more success had we, you know, considered the total picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's certainly changed now. Um, my relationship with the players is much stronger than than perhaps what it was uh, and stronger than my relationship with the data, I guess. What's in your ZNA? That is a question our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, has for you. Are you interested in increasing your performance output, helping the environment, and doing less laundry? If you answered yes to any of those questions, please go to ZenkaiSports.com and check out the latest innovation in performance apparel. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping your cooler for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. I would highly recommend trying this amazing product, and I've teamed up with them so you can get 20% off your entire order. Just head over to ZenkaiSports.com and use the discount code LYM20. What's been interesting or um, enlightening by working with two, I guess, kinds of different breeds of athletes. You've got the soccer player, or uh, as the Euro- one would refer to it as the European footballer, or, and then you have the Australian rules football player. Um, one is a, a high-contact game. It's, uh, you know, for the, the North American listening, a little bit more like rugby in the sense that there, there's sure. contact and all that, and, and then there's soccer, which contact is more incidental in some sense and a different breed of athlete. Like what are, what do you notice as the big differences in working with those athletes and what has challenged you about making the conversion when you had to convert? Yeah, I think from a, a well, firstly you have a cultural um, difference and the cultural difference in Australia, we're all quite culturally similar. It's hard work. If you've spent your life from age, let's say, five through to 20, let's say, mm. um, getting tackled, smashed from any different angle, uh, you know, most of these guys were sort of 14, 15 when they were highly talented and they were playing against adults then who would treat them with the disdain that you or I might if a young kid was trying to you know, come and take our spot. Um <laughs> in that sort of sport uh, and so they are used to getting smashed and get back up again and and some of the contact that these guys take from all different angles you know which separates it from say rugby when you kind of know that it's coming mm. um, is extraordinary and that just breeds a certain toughness and resilience the if I, if I translate that to the European soccer the toughness and resilience there is underestimated because these guys are the top of their tree, the clubs I've been lucky enough to work with, when you have, I don't know, let's say a billion participants who want to be there. Mm. So they've had to train hard every day under snow, heat, you know, all kinds of different 
conditions to get to the top of their game. So that's a different level of resilience. They have a a, a resilience of repeat training sessions that the, the Australian Aussie rules players just don't have. But uh, if they get a a knock to their face or to their upper body, it's it's you know it's a catastrophe. <laughs> um, whereas uh, you know the the same thing to. Um, you know, to a rugby player or an Australian rules or, a, or an NFL player is is treated as part of the game. Where where the real difference is, uh, Scott is the um, at at the levels that I was lucky enough to work with. I'm dealing with agents. I'm dealing with mm. home country surgeons. I'm dealing with players' best mates who are part of their entourage. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm dealing with those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Whereas it, with the AFL, you just don't deal with any of that. Mm-hmm. The players are um, are far more team oriented and are far more um, workmanlike, I guess, if I can use that that term. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of cultural differences in in that respect in dealing with the sports. It doesn't make them any less or more of an athlete, any less or more competitive, anything like that. It's just more what comes with the territory at elite European soccer. Mm-hmm compared to the AFL, of which only only one country really plays it. Right. At the at the elite European soccer place, just to unpack that a little bit, um, how how what's been what were your strategies for for creating trust, uh, especially when you know trust needs to be built relatively quickly so you can get on with performance in some sense and have you had certain strategies or do you take certain strategies to build trust with these guys uh, it's given the nature of all that they have going on in their worlds around them yeah that, that that's the hardest thing and uh i remember when i first landed at liverpool um you know dealing with then you know we had five or six players at liverpool when i first got there that were in the top 10 in the world Mm-hmm. And uh, being a, a child soccer fan, like that's what I loved. I played cricket, but I loved soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, getting to work with these players was was incredible. So uh, the first meeting I had with a couple of the senior players there was, this is what we're going to do. We're going to extend your career. We're going to bring in GPS. We're going to do all this. And <laughs> he looked at me and uh, got up and said, uh, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> And uh, I just went, wow, you know, that didn't go too well. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, but uh, I just went, okay, yeah, we will. And so every day I was the first there. I was the last to leave. Um, I did everything, even though the position might not have required it. I did everything from putting out the cones to putting the GPS in the vest to, you know, analysing their CK. I made sure that it was me who was doing it every Sunday morning session after a Saturday afternoon when there was 10 internationals in their own country who weren't selected and none of the coaches turned up to do the the over session, we called it. I made sure I was there at every single one. Mm. And and so that was my way of getting respect is mm. making sure that the players knew that without question I was there for them, mm. not necessarily for the club, Mm-hmm. Um, but I was there to get the best out of them, and then in the, in the, um, uh, as a result of being there for them, the club would benefit because the players would perform at their best and be a bit more resilient and a bit more injury free. Uh, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, one of the lessons I learned really on early on in the piece, Scott at, at Liverpool was uh, be respected, not liked. 
um, mm-hmm. because initially I, I probably tried to be liked a little bit. Mm. And uh, that same player said to me, um, I've had two previous fitness coaches. One I didn't like as a person, but I've never been fitter or more resilient, so I had a lot of respect for him. The other I liked as a person but was never fit. I could bully him around and boss him around, and if I didn't feel like doing a session, I just wouldn't. <laughs> and I, I quite liked him as a guy, but um, ultimately didn't respect him. Mm. He said to me straight up, you make the choice which one you want to be. And, um, yeah, and, I, and at that point I turned and chose, hopefully, to be respected. Not necessarily to be disliked, but I went more around, this, this is what's best for you. Um, the, the, probably the really hard thing to do was to um, convince coaches that you were there for them mm. because they have an immediate distrust. And in that, in, in my time at Liverpool, we had four coaches in three years, you know, so it was, I had to develop new relationships, different cultures, different backgrounds. Uh, and even at Arsenal, uh, I walk in with Arsene Wenger, you know, the greatest coach that club's ever seen and arguably in the top two or three in the world. And and then we changed uh, midway through my tenure there to, to a Spanish coach with a different philosophy and then had to get their respect. So mm. uh, my, my way of doing it was through hard work, through letting them make the decisions but providing them with as much information as, as I possibly could. What have you learned about the 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 coach like you just talked about those coaches and they're obviously a certain breed of human being that deals with a lot of stress and a lot of you know they're they're hired to be fired in some sense so yes. yeah what what have you learned about working with them and understanding what they really need from you and how do you how have you strategically over time learned to figure that out yeah it's um that, that's been the most interesting part of my uh, journey, I guess. Um, working with players has been fun um, at times, challenging, obviously, but uh, working with coaches has been the most challenging because particularly in soccer, they come from different backgrounds. And um, the stress that that they're under, the stress that Arsene Wenger, a legend of world football, was under in his past in his previous six, in his last six months in the job was incredible. These fans and media that he had given so much to just turned on him. And Mm. at home games, you know, that it was extraordinary. Uh, Away fans would, you know, take the mickey out of him. And the way he handled it is the way I would like to handle it. You know, if I was in that situation and I was in a much more watered-down situation, I wouldn't even begin to compare myself to that, so please don't think. But going through getting sacked from Arsenal, um, uh, I tried to handle it in a similar vein. Mm. The way he handled it was, listen, this is football. I'm really confident in my ability as a coach. I'm really confident that I've provided this club with my very, very best Mm. and I've made decisions all along the line to help the club where I think some coaches get it wrong, if I can be so sort of presumptuous as to, um, to make this judgment is when they know they haven't made decisions in the best interest of the club, mm-hmm. when they've made it in the best interest of themselves. And that that's coaches of all disciplines, not just mm-hmm. head coaches. That's when they start to second guess themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, when they think I better not pick this player because, um, 
I didn't sign him and it might look bad for me. Mm. Um, and, you, and you know that. You know, I've been in every coach's meeting for 22 years at different levels, um, at every team selection meeting, every strategy meeting, every tactic meeting. And so you get to pick which coaches are doing it for the right reasons. And I think that holds them in good stead when they can look in the mirror and say, I did everything right for whatever reason. It didn't work out. Um, you know, someone like Roy Hodgson was probably in that category at Liverpool. He got sacked after six months, but he did everything within the best interests of the club that he felt others maybe didn't do it so much like that. Um, mm. So it, I think that's a, a strategy that that the really good coaches employ. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's answered your question. Or I'm just telling no, a story, it's, but, uh, but yeah, um, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested too, is um, again, just, you know, your observations uh, from two guys who've worked in this industry is I always found it curious that as I started with the statement, coaches are hired to be fired, which is really fundamentally true. I mean, there are very, there are very rare examples of coaches that have stuck around with any organization for, you know, longer than 10 years as an example. And that's usually very long anyways. But if that's the the reality, I've always been curious as to why some coaches will compromise themselves or their, their belief in their approach in order to keep the job in essence. Um, yeah. it, 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 I always found that kind of counterintuitive that I would expect that they wouldn't because they know that they're going to get fired at some point. So you might as well get fired for doing it the way you believe you should do it. And I'm just interested in your thought on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps um, the mindset might be, I'm going to get fired anyway, so I may as well do it my way with my people around me mm. and people that I can trust because it is such a, particularly European soccer, it is such a, you know, a dog-eat-dog world and a uh, who can you trust and, mm. uh, you know, who you can't trust and make sure you document everything. Because, and that's just not the way that some coaches um, – uh, operate or would, would prefer to operate. It's certainly not the way I would prefer to operate. Mm. Um, but in terms of head coaches, I think they think, well, if I'm going to come into Arsenal or Liverpool or Manchester City, I'm going to bring my people in because at least in my area, I can trust that these guys will um, uh, will uh, work my way. Now, the downside of that, Scott, is and I've seen it so often, is that uh, they're just surrounded by, yes, men and women. That's it. And just people who will say, yes, boss, yes, no, boss, yes, that's completely right. right. Um, and and that's the risk, and I've seen it a lot, as I'm sure you have. Um, and so they probably know, but um, they would prefer to surround themselves with people they can trust rather than learn a new method. Right. Um, which, again, to you and I might be counterintuitive, but in that moment when the average manager tenure in the Premier League is under two years, mm. if I'm going to be here for two years, I might as well give my mates a job and give them some money and be surrounded by people who, who won't challenge me all the time. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting take. I, I'm glad I asked you that question. Um, I want to sort of 
pivot a bit onto, you know, back to the thing that you, you had lost uh, one of your mentors, Dean Bailey, and then there was uh, Phil Walsh, I think you mentioned. What, what did those two men um, mean to you in terms of shaping you as a person? And what did you learn from them um, individually and maybe in a combined way? Matrix Fitness produces training equipment that focuses on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike, with equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner. Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix Performance Team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and get better. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Matrix Fitness Canada for the latest updates around the success stories that document what makes Matrix unique as an equipment manufacturer. Yeah, it's um, I've never really spoken about Phil uh, publicly. Um, not not that I have a public profile, so please don't. But I've never really spoken about it um, mm-hmm. outside. But uh, I'll give you an example of how close we were in 2014. Phil came to work for. I worked with Port Adelaide with Phil for three years from 2005 to 2008 and and then we went I went uh, into soccer and we kept in a lot of contact and in, in the early days with Phil he challenged me a lot and I mean a lot he was abrasive he was rude he was unbelievably confident in his knowledge of the sport and was challenging of anybody who he didn't think worked as hard as him and so in that first year that I worked with him, he was quite challenging. In the second year, he came to me at the start of the season and said, I gave you a pretty rough time last year. Um, I wanted to challenge you. Um, you've passed. I would take you any day of the week as my fitness coach. And that meant a lot to me. And he walked straight out because he was a pretty abrupt sort of guy. Mm. Then he had a near-death experience in, in South America, got hit by a bus and was stuck there for a while. And uh, we we continued our communication. I noticed he changed a lot. Mm. 2014, he came and worked for Port Adelaide, and and he was so good that the local team, our rivals, of which maybe one or two players in the history of the sport had jumped from one team to another, he got offered the role as the head coach at the. Adelaide Crows, which were our rivals, and that's just never happened. The coach has never gone from one to the other. Mm. But he went there. We spoke for probably a month almost every night about should he take it, should he not. Uh, He took the job and we met in this small town of Adelaide. The only place we could meet was this coffee shop that was open uh, at 6 a.m. twice a week. We'd go and meet there just to talk because if we were seen, if he was seen talking to somebody else from another club, you know, that's how bad it was in that yeah, town. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah, and then uh, that team did really, really well under him um, and I was really happy for him even though we were rivals uh, and then he was tragically killed um, wow. uh, by, by his son in a, in a, in a you know, uh, unbelievable tale which, which, you know, I wouldn't be physically able to, to, to talk about. But um, he taught me... Uh, hard work, but he also taught me um, what really mattered in in life because he changed completely when he realised that life could be taken away mm. um, from him, and he he just changed so much. And 
he said to me many times, you know, don't make the same mistakes that I did and be a workaholic. And um, and what I what I miss most is being able to just give him a call and say, listen, I'm going through this. Can you help me out here? Mm-hmm. Um, Dean was a far more jovial, relaxed uh, person who was a, a bit calmer and a bit more... Um, uh, yeah, a bit more controlled under pressure and could always find the humour in a situation. He became a head coach. But, you know, just imagine this, if it was the uh, New York Yankees or something like that, he, he became a head coach of, a, of the team that I'm working for now, mm. Melbourne Demons, a while ago. And and I was at Liverpool at the time and we would speak at least weekly. He would give me a call, what do you think about this method? What do you think about that method? And, and they were always at really odd hours for either of us. Um <laughs> And then he got uh, he got sacked for um, allegedly uh, throwing some games to get a better draft pick. Uh, it was extraordinary. Again, I'll, I'll get too fired up if I talk about it, so I won't. Um, but I believe firmly to this day that that was a significant factor in him. Uh, the stress that that mm. put him under was a significant factor in him. So uh, in him passing with cancer. Um, so what he taught me is to always find the humour and the bigger picture in mm. situations. Um, and I, I believe without having the relationship that I had with both of them, um, I'm not sure how I would have got through the last sort of two years of my life um, mm. in terms of getting stacked and going through a relationship breakdown and, and, and finding a new relationship and things like that. Um, I, I'm not sure that I, I, they gave me, they absolutely gave me the, the tools to get through it um, mm. and not having them as mentors uh, as well as my mum has, has been, um, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty distressing. Mm. Um, you obviously we all come out of these things and we, our lives are shaped by these different uh, aspects of that, that stress us. And I was, I'm interested um, you had mentioned that earlier about, you know, how much people are starting to recognize stress on the professionals that work in pro, in in high-level sport. And I was also curious around the athletes because, you, you know, you were talking about the media and all those things. So there, there is a, a huge amount of stress that is burdened upon athletes and coaches and ownership and all these people in, in elite sport. And as a high performance director, like how much is that shaping the way you do your work now? Like, are you comparatively speaking, say 20, 15, 20 years ago, when you're probably cutting your teeth around the physiology of what you're doing, are you spending more time on things like mindset and, um, you know, working with your sports psychology team and, you know, how has that shaped the, the, the work that you do now as a high performance director? Yeah, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with two really outstanding people in this field and David Priestley at Arsenal and, and Kerry Evans, who's a consultant for a bunch of different sports, and they come at it from different angles. David is very much a, um, a people psychologist and Kerry is a performance psychiatrist, so they're very mm. different. And so I've been lucky enough. Uh, to to get to know them as well as someone like Laura Mosley who has just got an Order of Australia for his work in pain science and the mm. influence that the brain has in pain. So how has that shaped me? Um, 
I have a lot more respect for it than I once did. I would in the early days is just say, just say, don't look at it, don't read it. If people write bad articles, don't read it. Mm. Um, I realise that's impossible. Um, uh, just use it as a motivation for you. Use it, and I realise that not everybody can do that. Mm. That it, it, that everybody is built a little bit differently, and they accept stress um, and and deal with stress uh, a little bit differently. And so now my job is to find out, part of my job is to find out how do coaches, my staff, my players, um, how do they accept that stress? What do they do with it? How do they, um, how does it influence their performance, their injury risk? Um, and, and how can I help them in that, if at all? in that process um and i found that my job now is to provide options for them have you tried a float tank have you tried meditation have you tried this app have you spoken to this person provide some options and and let's see which one sticks um Mm. because it's very real it's the media have just no concept on how damaging they can be Mm. um fans have no concept on how damaging they can be for me um I I took up uh, Transcendental Meditation uh, pretty much straight after Phil passed away uh, in 2000, uh, late 2014. That's helped me enormously, Um, but that's not for everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I can't just say, no, go and do that. Um, So uh, how has it changed? I've I've learned to respect it a lot more and its influence on people's you know, people's everyday life, particularly athletes who are dealing with it in the media. Here again with another word from our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, the new disruptor in the performance apparel world. Zenkai uses a brand new technology that repels liquids, keeping you cooler during intense activity as the sweat evaporates naturally off your skin. This allows athletes to regulate body temperature easier and push themselves harder as we harness the power of our sweat. Sweat is our friend. Keep it on you. Zenkai Sports is also the only performance apparel company which is cotton-based. All of their gear is over 65% cotton and some pieces over 95%. Cotton is biodegradable, feels great against our skin, and is much better for our environment than synthetic-based apparel. Please go to ZenkaiSports.com for more information and for 20% off your entire order, just use the discount code LYM20. Cool. I'm going to use that as my segue point for reading you your purpose. You were um, born May 17th, correct? Yes. So you were a Taurus 8. Your purpose is I'm, to... I can't wait for this, by the way. I've been looking forward. I've heard this at other, <laughs> in the other podcasts. And, uh, I didn't want to Google it. I wanted you to tell me. I actually just sat down with uh, the lady who wrote the book, Linda Joyce, this morning and had her do an astro- astro- astrology reading on me, which was quite fascinating. Ah, uh, superb. Um, your purpose is to risk yourself, to learn your truth and keep your goals and your moral boundaries from becoming too rigid. Good ideas and innovations must be driven into existence by courageous patience. Admiral Hyman Rickover. Here the feelings of Venus must take a form and Saturn provides the container and the process. If they reflect each other's needs, they work well together. If they don't, the misrepresentation will be the cause of trouble. The Taurus 8 is asked to be aware of duality. They must begin by asking, do I present myself the way I really am? The package attracts. If it is misleading, then so will be the rewards. To balance the Taurus 
8 energy requires continuous adjustment and no group is harder on themselves than these people. Driven to improve themselves, the Taurus 8s never relax. Few of us change habits and appearances to reflect our physical or spiritual growth. We gain weight but refuse to buy clothes in the next size. My advice to all Taurus 8 souls is to change. They need to shake up their world, alter their hemlines, wear the new shirt. They'll be surprised at how great it feels to acknowledge those urges to easily so easily dismissed the tourist date must learn to encourage their growth how's that hit you mm, absolutely my goodness uh yeah yeah i might get you to send that to me if you can scott uh, mm. that would take a far more reflection than than i've had right now um absolutely yeah it's, that it, it's it's one of the issues that i've struggled with is is to relax is mm. to uh accept uh, not necessarily accept change, but but also to learn to um, learn to enjoy change mm. um, and learn to just sit with it. Um, mm. So yeah, that's that's uh, um, yeah fascinating. I love to love to read more on that. Yeah, we'll send it to you. Speaking of change, you know, you you you're a dad of an eight and a nine year old. I think it was. So segue back ten years ago. What what's changing you by your your expression of fatherhood uh yeah that that that's passed through uh, probably a, a couple of different um <clears throat> uh variances and in the early days i guess it was just the complete feeling of helplessness mm. um, of of i can research how to you know fix a hamstring or how to but I, I can't, I can't help. I, I feel like I can't help this, mm. you know, this this boy. My, my son was my first born, mm. um, and so it was that feeling of, you know, just complete in all with the whole process. Um, uh, it, it changed me to realise that there is a, um, not necessarily a higher purpose, but yeah, I can no longer just consider you know, myself, myself and my partner um, in everything, in every decision, in every aspect of your life. That's that's what you, you just can't be selfish mm-hmm. at all. Um, and, you know, you can almost in some relationships and in my early relationships I could get away with being selfish. You can't <laughs> in the relationship with your kids and I've learned in subsequent relationships you can't and you ought not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, yeah, that that's probably in the early days, uh, in my probably in the last twelve months where, um, you know, it's been it's been a challenge um, uh, seeing my kids regularly um, because of a few different factors. Um, just their um, the absolute joy that they bring to your world um, mm. and uh, any frustration and any. Um, temporary um yeah temporary frustration or inconvenience is just so heavily outweighed mm. um by, by the joy that they bring and and just the the unconditional want to get the best for them mm. and it is unconditional um is just something that i haven't experienced um prior to that so mm. um hence you know a couple of career decisions that, that we spoke about earlier and and just the um, the need to be near them all the time. Mm-hmm. 
you, like many, pretty much everybody else in the world, probably has experienced this, uh, having your work world sort of put on pause for a little while uh, because of what's going on in the world. How is that pause um, reflected in your you know, valuation of, of the things you do, of your relationships and stuff like that. What, how has this last few months shaped you? Yeah, it's, um, uh, firstly, it's made me, or it's re-emphasized along with, um, if, and it probably needed to be re-stamped for me, um, the, not the lack of importance of what we do, but that there are more, there are bigger issues around mm. and um, yeah, the, the, the Phil and Dean and, and my mother uh, scenarios of which they displayed more courage than any, you know, any player that I've ever worked with. Um, uh, they, they emphasize it, but I probably needed a bit of a retweak mm. on what, um, what is really important. And the last three months has, has demonstrated that, that it, that is about relationships, both personal and professional. Mm. Um, and that they're the only things that can give you real satisfaction mm. and real joy and happiness. And, um, when they're put into question or they're, they're, they're um, compromised, that makes you, you know, that, that gives everybody pause for thought. Um, it's emphasized to me the value of true leadership Mm-hmm. And that's leadership within a football club, within a society, within a country. Mm-hmm. And you can't help but be influenced by some of the leadership that's been going on around the world. Um, you just, you just, you just can't help but be um, be challenged by it and mm-hmm. reflect on your own leadership style. And then um, finally, for our industry, uh, it's just a shame because we've copped a battering in this and. Um, in Australia, about seven or eight years ago, the industry copped a really, uh, a, a, a really bad hit due to the actions of a couple of individuals, um, and everybody got tainted. And we've only just sort of clawed our way back in Australia, mm. and now in Australia and worldwide, it's sort of okay. What can we get rid of? Because there's no crowds, and the TV money's less. And mm. well, we can get rid of the performance side of things or minimise the performance uh, people because we need coaches, we need, you know, we need doctors, we need people in commercial and marketing and things like that, but maybe mm. we don't need so many strength and conditioning or and so some really good people have been put out of work through no fault of their own. So, you know, at a, at a really microscopic level, that's that's been a real challenge mm. um, for the industry is, is talking to people around the world who, um, you know, who, who can't put food on the table as, as well as, you know, as often as they'd like to. And that's, that's the level that it's got to. Mm. Yeah, it is a very difficult time for a lot of people. Um, I want to finish by, um, you know, you will perish from this earth one day, hopefully not for a long time, but how, how do you hope you are remembered by people or how do you feel, hope you have made other people feel while you've spent your time on this earth? Um, I would uh, hope that uh, loyalty, as that I've been loyal to them and loyal to um, the uh, 
uh, the shared beliefs that we had, no matter what the relationship was, whether it was a, you know, whether it was a partner, a father, a brother, a sister, a work colleague. I think that's really, really important. Um, uh, I would think that I've been true to the, um, the again, the shared beliefs hmm. that we had, what that relationship um, was, whether it was a mentor, whether it was, a, again, a partner, a, a father, a brother, a, a son. Um, I, I would think those two things would be, um, and, and uh, probably in the last seven or eight years, been a lot more selfless. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I would think that would that would that would make me happy even in death. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your candor. It's been an amazing hour of conversation. It's great to get to know you, and uh, hopefully, our paths will cross uh, physically one day in the future. And until such time, uh, I wish you the best with everything that you're going through, uh, and hopefully, back at work, uh, full blast uh, sooner rather than later. Cheers, God, I really appreciate it, and, and congrats on, on all the work that you do for the industry. I like the the slant that you put on these these performance talks. It's it's fantastic and much needed. Thank you, sir, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>